Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. This is going to be the complete episode of the three A's of Pakistan. So I know you may have listened to the first two parts already. This is going to be the entire thing. But before we begin, I must thank Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his help with the research on this episode and for upcoming episodes. I'll give you a full story of the rundown of the of the assistance he has provided after the show is over. Until then, though, before you begin this episode, just in case you've already listened to the first two parts, I encourage you to go ahead and listen to the full episode. Even if you've heard it already, there's been uh, a few additions, a few, not many changes, really. Everything is still pretty much the same, but uh, I've edited and added a few clips in there. And so it kind of builds the entire story. So uh, don't fast forward to the last 10 minutes or so, okay? Just listen to the whole thing. Show notes for this episode will be available at islamichistorypodcast.com slash Pakistan. Also, one last thing before we get into the show. At the end of the episode, there will be a brief discussion on the Ahmadiyya. And I uh, hope you stay tuned to listen to that. But until then, let's go ahead and get into the show. This is the three A's of Pakistan. As you know, of the many races, creeds and religions that inhabit, that inhabit the vast subcontinent of India, there are two major nations, the Hindus and Muslims. Hundred billions of Muslims cannot be characterized as a minority. We are 70 millions in the northwestern and northeastern zones of India. We constitute a majority of 70% against the caste Hindus in these homelands of ours. We want the division of India into Hindustan and Pakistan because that is the only practical solution which will secure freedom for both Hindus and Muslims. Pakistan's treacherous tribal belt lies within these mountains in the northwest of the country. They've been the Tariqi Taliban or the TTP's base since 2007. Then, some 30 armed radical Islamist groups agreed to come together under one banner, the Pakistani Taliban. The organization accused the government of working with the United States in its war on terror after 9-11. Islamabad says the TTP have been responsible for most terrorist attacks in Pakistan since the group was founded, resulting in up to 50,000 deaths. Our movement is not restricted to any single region. It is not only in the tribal areas, it is all over Pakistan. It is all over the subcontinent. The next pillar of our new strategy is to change the approach and how to deal with Pakistan. We can no longer be silent about Pakistan's safe havens for terrorist organizations, the Taliban, and other groups that pose a threat to the region and beyond. Pakistan has much to gain from partnering with our effort in Afghanistan. It has much to lose by continuing to harbor criminals and terrorists. The Islamic Republic of Pakistan was born on August 14, 1947, 
with the partition of British India. This partition divided a former British colony into two new nations, India and Pakistan. Pakistan is the sixth largest country in the world and the second largest Muslim country after Indonesia. To date, it is still the only nuclear-armed Muslim nation. Pakistan's leaders have always emphasized the nation's role as the Fort of Islam. The nation's founders believed it would eventually emerge as a modern and model Muslim state. However, Pakistan has not quite lived up to these lofty goals. It has experienced four military coups, one civil war, multiple wars with India, and a protracted war against extremist militias. These problems have certainly contributed in hindering Pakistan's progress and potential. But to truly understand the unique situation Pakistan faces, we must look at its history. There is a saying in Pakistan that the country is run by the three A's, Allah, the Army, and America. In this episode, we will explore the role each of these factors have had in the development and history of Pakistan. The first A, Allah. It goes without saying that the religion of Islam plays a powerful role in every facet of Pakistani life. From the design of its flag to its constitution and laws, the influence of Islam is everywhere. Pakistan was created in the name of Allah and founded for and by the Muslims of India. As a nation, 96% of Pakistan identifies as Muslim. The preamble to Pakistan's constitution reads, Whereas sovereignty over the entire universe belongs to Almighty Allah alone, and the authority to be exercised by the people of Pakistan within the limits prescribed by him is a sacred trust. Islam and Pakistani Politics Muhammad Assad was born Leopold Weiss in 1900 to a Jewish family in Austria. He traveled the Muslim world, converted to Islam in 1926, and became close friends with Abdulaziz ibn Saud, the founder of Saudi Arabia. By the late 1940s, he had become a strong supporter of the Pakistan movement and was the first person to receive a Pakistani passport. Muhammad Assad was later appointed the director of the Department of Islamic Reconstruction, then joined Pakistan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Finally, in 1952, he became Pakistan's UN ambassador. Muhammad Assad's journey from Austrian Jew to Pakistani Muslim diplomat illustrates the role Islam plays in the nation's politics. Even the leaders of Pakistan, for all their power and prestige, make sure to highlight their Islamic credentials. Here are a few examples. Ayub Khan, the second president of Pakistan, was a very secular Muslim. 
Nonetheless, Ayub Khan made sure to use Islamic phrases and prohibited explicitly anti-Islamic laws. Zulfikar Ali Bhutto ran for office on a socialist agenda but branded it as Islamic Socialism. He also helped organize the Islamic Summit Conference in Lahore, Pakistan in 1974. Even the current Prime Minister, Imran Khan, has promised to reshape Pakistan on the model of Medina and quotes Prophet Muhammad on his Twitter account. Some Pakistani leaders have used Islam to justify their own corruption. General Zia-ul-Haq came to power in 1977 when he overthrew Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto in a military coup. Seeking to legitimize the takeover, General Zia-ul-Haq instituted various Islamic reforms including ordinances for zakat, prayers, banking, and criminal justice. However, his most controversial legislation was Pakistan's infamous blasphemy law passed in 1986. While the government has never executed anyone for blasphemy, the laws have been a source of turmoil within Pakistan. Perhaps the most famous case is that of Asia Bibi Noreen, a Pakistani Christian woman accused of blasphemy. Asia had initially got into an argument with two Muslim women while working in a berry field, and they accused her of insulting the Prophet. The grief and agony of two young girls who wait to see if the Pakistani government will execute their jailed mother. Whenever I see her picture, I cry, says 12-year-old Isham. This month, the Pakistani court sentenced Isham and Isha's mother, Asia Bibi, to death. Not because she killed, injured, or stole, but simply because she said something. Prosecutors say Asia Bibi insulted Islam and the Prophet Muhammad. They say the alleged incident happened when she was picking berries in this field in the town of Itanwali, just about at two hours west of Lahore. Though she denied the accusation, an investigation ensued and Asia Noreen was arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced to death in 2010. During this whole ordeal, the blasphemy laws came under global scrutiny. Some Pakistani politicians even spoke out against them. One of these politicians was Salman Tasir, the governor of Punjab province where Asia Noreen was from. Salman Tasir criticized the blasphemy law, calling it a black law. In January 2011, he was assassinated for insulting the law that prohibited insulting the prophet. The killer was one of Salman Tasir's own bodyguards. When Pakistan's Supreme Court overturned Asiya's death sentence in October 2018, protests shut the country down for two days. Sectarianism in Pakistan According to the CIA Factbook, Pakistan is roughly 85% Sunni, 20% Shia, with the remaining identifying as Christian, Hindu, or other. Despite the existence of a large Shia minority, Pakistan has not seen much in the way of sectarian strife. Pakistan's Shia community consists of Twelvers, the most prominent Shia group, and Seveners, also known as Ismailis. The Ismailis are further divided into Bohras and Aga Khanis. 
Several Shia Muslims have played prominent roles in Pakistan's politics. Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the father of Pakistan, was born into a Bahra Ismaili family before becoming a Twelver Shia. His family later claimed he converted to Sunni Islam before he died. Prime Minister Zulfikar Ali Bhutto was a Shia, as was his daughter and fellow Prime Minister, Benazir Bhutto. Jogendra Nath Mandal was one of the founders of Pakistan, yet he was a Hindu. He served as the country's first minister of law and labor. Zafarullah Khan was an Ahmadi and the nation's first foreign minister. Pakistan has also had two non-Muslim chief justices, Rana Bhagwan Das, who was Hindu, and A.R. Cornelius, who was Christian. Nonetheless, while most of the different religious groups in Pakistan get along quite well, there have been some issues. Shia celebrations of Ashura require a heavy police and military presence. Sipahi Sahaba Pakistan, an anti-Shia militant group, has targeted and killed hundreds of Shia since the 1980s. And Shia Muslims have been occasionally attacked during large prayer gatherings at holy shrines. Despite these problems, Shia Muslims are well integrated into Pakistan society and instances of sectarian violence is rare. And the reason is obvious. Sunnis and Shias separated centuries ago over a political dispute between the Prophet's companions. Most modern Muslims neither know nor care about the origin of that dispute and hardly think it is worth fighting over today. The situation with Pakistan's Ahmadiyya community is more complex. Where Sunnis and Shias in Pakistan live and work together with few issues, the Ahmadiyya are often considered a hostile element. The Ahmadiyya, derogatively known as Qadiani, began in India in 1888 when Mirza Ghulam Ahmed claimed to be the Mahdi and the Messiah. He later claimed to be a prophet of Allah, violating a core tenet of Islam that Muhammad was the last prophet. The history of the Ahmadiyya is somewhat like the history of the Mormons in the United States. The first Mormons were also persecuted and chased from state to state by mostly Protestant American Christians. This persecution by the majority led both Mormons and Ahmadiyya to create highly structured, secretive, and well-funded organizations. This allows them to control their message, and over the years, both groups have modified their religious views to become more in line with modern sensibilities. Even though most mainstream Christian groups do not consider Mormons to be Christian, Mormons are no longer a persecuted minority in the United States. The United States is simply not as religious as it was in the early 19th century. But things are different in Pakistan. Pakistan's Ahmadiyya community faced both legal and social discrimination. There have been anti-Ahmadiyya demonstrations and riots in Pakistan going back to the 1950s. Pakistan's government has officially declared the Ahmadiyya to be non-Muslim. 
and even today, being outed as an Ahmadiyya may ruin one's career in Pakistan. However, the Ahmadiyya are not completely innocent. They have been known to deliberately target Sunni Muslim youth for conversion and have been accused of funding propaganda against Pakistan. Religious Extremism in Pakistan Finally, there are the various extremist groups in Pakistan. Like any other country, Muslims in Pakistan run the gamut from borderline atheists to hardcore fanatics. The hardcore fanatics are the ones we always hear about. But even hardcore fanatics have levels. Most are simply devout Muslims with views that do not jibe with modern sensibilities. These Muslims may support the blasphemy law and may consider non-Muslims to be unclean, but they will usually never resort to violence. And then there are the crazies. It all began with the Soviet war in Afghanistan. General Zia-ul-Haq agreed to assist the CIA in arming the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviets. He created paramilitary training camps in Pakistan which doubled as Islamic seminary schools called madrasas. As Muslims around the world have done for centuries, young Pakistani men gravitated to these schools to study Islam. However, General Zia-ul-Haq schools went a step further and encouraged these young men to join the fight against the Soviet Union. By 1989, the Soviet Union had pulled out of Afghanistan. But now, its isolated and mountainous border with Pakistan was flooded with thousands of hardened, well-armed, well-trained Muslim guerrillas who knew nothing else but warfare. As Afghanistan descended into chaos after the Soviet withdrawal, the Pakistani government sought to bring some stability to the nation. Members of Pakistan's intelligence services helped create the Taliban, a band of Afghan student soldiers who fought against the Soviets. Seeking money and connections to strengthen their fragile hold on Afghanistan, the Taliban partnered with wealthy Saudi dissident Osama bin Laden. When Osama bin Laden was implicated in the 9-11 attacks in 2001, the U.S. government targeted him and his Taliban sponsors. The United States turned to the Pakistani government for help against the Taliban, and new President Pervez Musharraf agreed. Angered by this betrayal, the Taliban joined forces with other militant groups in a three-pronged war against the United States, the new Afghan government, and Pakistan. This gave rise to the militant group known as Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, or TTP. The result has been nearly two decades of violence, destruction, and death in Pakistan. In 2007, TTP militants took over Islamabad's Lal Masjid, also known as the Red Mosque. For nearly two years prior, the militants had been causing trouble in the region by destroying property, attacking women for not dressing properly, and calling for the government's overthrow. When the police tried to stop them, TTP fought them off and holed up inside the mosque. The president called in the military and a siege began. When negotiations failed, the army moved in and fought the militants from room to room. 
over 100 militants and 10 soldiers were killed. In 2008, TTP infiltrated the Swat Valley in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province along Pakistan's northwest border with Afghanistan. TTP demanded the government implement their version of Sharia law. When Pakistan refused, TTP began carrying out the law on their own. As TTP atrocities mounted, the government took a few half-hearted measures, including directing the local police to handle the situation. Outgunned and outmanned, the police were forced to give up control of the valley to TTP. One of TTP's most draconian measures was the prohibition of school for girls. Even after the government and TTP worked out a temporary peace deal, girls were still forbidden from attending school in SWAT. In late 2008, the BBC's Urdu website wanted to do a profile on how girls in SWAT were dealing with the situation. A local activist named Ziauddin Yusufzai suggested his 11-year-old daughter would be a good candidate. Over the next several months, his daughter Malala, writing under a pseudonym, shared her experiences in SWAT via blog posts to the BBC website. Some of these posts made it to local newspapers raising the suspicions of TTP. By May 2009, the peace deal had broken down and the army was preparing for another invasion of SWAT. Meanwhile, Ziauddin and Malala were still advocating for education rights. Malala appeared on national news shows and gave interviews about the crisis in her home. As they became more vocal in their criticism of TTP, word got out that Malala was behind the BBC's blog posts. TTP began sending Malala and her father death threats. But this did not stop Malala. She joined local women's empowerment groups and nonprofits for the disaffected children of SWAT. In 2011, she was nominated for the International Children's Peace Prize. That same year, she won Pakistan's first National Youth Prize. TTP finally decided to make good on their threats. In October 2012, a TTP gunman boarded a bus the 15-year-old Malala Yousafzai was riding home from school. He demanded Malala be identified, and when she was, he shot her in the head. The bullet passed through Malala's head just over her eyebrow, then down through her cheekbone and her neck before lodging in her shoulder. Two other girls were also injured in the attack. TTP's attempt to silence Malala Yousafzai backfired. The attempted murder shocked the world and brought international attention to the violence in Swat Valley. Politicians, activists, celebrities, and even Islamic scholars were united in their condemnations of TTP and support for Malala Yousafzai. Doctors were able to save her life, and Malala went on to win a slew of awards, including the Mother Teresa Award for Social Justice, being named one of Time's People of the Year, and finally, the 2014 Nobel Peace Prize. I'm proud, but in fact I'm very proud, to be the first Pashtun, the first Pakistani, and the youngest person to receive this award. Along with 
with that, along with that, I'm pretty certain that I'm also the first recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize who still fights with her younger brothers. <laughs> I want there to be peace everywhere, but my brothers and I are still working on that. TTP and other militant groups continue to wreak havoc in Pakistan. To date, over 60,000 people have been killed in a fighting between the extremist militias and Pakistan's government. The second A, the army. Pakistan has the world's 17th most powerful military and the seventh largest air force. This puts it ahead of other nations such as Australia, Canada, Saudi Arabia, and South Africa. Pakistan's standard service rifle is the German-made Heckler & Koch G3. Its main battle tank is the al Khalid tank produced jointly with China. And its primary fighter jet is the Pak JF-17 Thunder, also produced in conjunction with China. Most countries in the world have an army. But in Pakistan, the army has a country. In Pakistan's 72 years of existence, the military has ruled for 33 of them. And in the years when Pakistan had civilian rulers, the military's presence loomed in the background. Let's look at the long legacy of military influence in Pakistan. The British East India Company The history of Pakistan's army begins with the British East India Company in the 18th century. The British recruited local Indians to protect their trading posts. Over time, these Indian soldiers, known as Sepoys, grew into a formidable and professional army. As the army grew in strength, the British deployed them in more and more conflicts. This Indian army was key in establishing the EIC's dominance over the subcontinent. But while the EIC was reaping the rewards of their conquests, the Indian sepoys were growing frustrated. Military discipline was harsh and unforgiving. White British officers discriminated against the Indians who did most of the fighting. And the Indian sepoys were barred from becoming officers. In 1857, the Indian sepoys revolted against their British overlords. The rebellion was eventually put down, but the British knew they had to make changes. The East India Company was dissolved, India came under the direct rule of the British crown, and the British promised to stop its discriminatory practices. Over the next 90 years, the British Indian Army developed into one of the finest military forces in the world. The British unleashed the Sepoys across the globe in various colonial conflicts. The Sepoys fought in Afghanistan, Burma, Sudan, Egypt, South Africa, China, and both world wars. They crushed local uprisings and helped create the largest empire humanity has ever known. The Partition By the end of World War II, maintaining this global empire was taking its toll on the British. Drained of both men and money after the war, Britain chose to grant independence to India. This led to the partition of 1947 and the creation of two new nations called India and Pakistan. 
Pakistan was further divided into an eastern and western wing separated by a thousand miles of Indian territory. The partition sparked violence across the subcontinent as Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs turned against each other. The militaries of the two nations attempted to quell the violence but were mostly unsuccessful. The princely state of Kashmir had not yet decided whether it wanted to join Pakistan or India. Kashmir had a predominantly Muslim population, but the ruling Maharaja was Hindu. In 1948, tribal militias from Pakistan's northwest frontier province began pouring into Kashmir. The Maharaja reached out to India, who responded by sending in troops. Pakistan responded by sending in troops as well, and the first of several wars between the two nations began. To this day, Kashmir remains a source of conflict between the two nations. Ayub Khan, the first military ruler Ayub Khan became Pakistan's first native commander-in-chief in January 1951. Three years later, he was promoted to defense minister. And two years after that, his former army buddy, Iskander Mirza, was Pakistan's first president. His relationship with the president gave Ayub Khan almost complete authority and independence. He used this to turn the military into the most dominant force in Pakistani politics. However, by 1958, the friendship had broken down and Ayub Khan overthrew the president in Pakistan's first military coup. As president, Ayub Khan changed the constitution to make it more secular, introduced an American-style electoral college, and instigated another war with India in 1965. Once again, the fighting took place in the disputed territory of Kashmir. Though the war barely lasted two weeks, it had a long-lasting impact on Pakistan. Ayub Khan began spending more and more on Pakistan's military, nearly wiping out the financial progress made from the first half of the decade. Hounded by corruption scandals, civil unrest, and a faltering economy, Ayub Khan's days were numbered. In 1969, he resigned his post as president. Yahya Khan and Civil War Ayub Khan handed power over to his commander-in-chief, Yahya Khan, who promised to hold elections the following year. Yahya Khan followed through on his promise, but these elections only brought new problems to Pakistan. The 1947 partition had created a divided Pakistan. East Pakistan was dominated by Bengalis, whereas West Pakistan had a more varied ethnic mix. Divided by language, politics, and a thousand miles of Indian territory, East Pakistan wanted more autonomy from West Pakistan. This desire was championed by East Pakistan's leading political figure, Mujibur Rahman. On December 7, 1970, 56 million Pakistanis voted on 300 parliamentary seats. Mujibur Rahman's Awami League took 160 seats, which should have made him the country's next prime minister. At first, President Yahya Khan promised to abide by the election outcome and transfer control of the government to Mujibur Rahman. But pressure from Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto and other politicians convinced him to renege on this promise. This broken promise was too much. Demonstrations, riots, and violence broke out in East Pakistan. President Yahya Khan responded by outlawing the Awami League, arresting Mujibur Rahman, and cracking down on Bengali leaders. 
Things in East Pakistan are so bad that its people, the Bengalis, are understandably tempted to believe that any change will be an improvement. And so, with a growing mood of national euphoria, they are being swept onto a collision course with West Pakistan, a course which may already be beyond change. The only language that East and West Pakistanis have in common is English. English signs on shops have been painted or taped out of sight. Anything that smacks of communicating with West Pakistan is considered undesirable. Three months after the elections, the nation was engulfed in all-out civil war. Before long, India, which had always been suspected of instigating the dispute, had entered the war on the side of East Pakistan. Terrified at the prospect of fighting two opponents on multiple fronts, Pakistan's military leadership quickly surrendered. On December 16, 1971, East Pakistan became the independent nation of Bangladesh. The Curse of 1971 Some say Allah cursed those leaders behind the Civil War of 1971 for dividing the world's largest Muslim nation. Though we are not qualified to interpret divine events, the final fate of those responsible is rather curious. Mujibur Rahman became Bangladesh's first prime minister after independence. Four years later, he was assassinated in a military coup. Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, the father of Bangladesh and its only leader since independence, was killed by his bodyguards today in a military coup. The prime minister was killed too. The new president is Kandakar Ahmed, who was against Mujibur's close friendship with Russia and India. He's a conservative lawyer who, with Mujib, was one of the leaders of the war for independence and who is said to want close friendship with the United States. Ahmed renamed the country the Islamic Republic of Bangladesh. Zulfikar Ali Bhutto became president of Pakistan in 1971. Six years later, he was overthrown in a military coup, then hanged for murder in 1979. Indira Gandhi, the prime minister of India during the Civil War, also met a violent end. Two of her bodyguards shot her to death in 1984. Yahya Khan was the only one who died a natural death in 1980, but his remaining years were spent in humiliation and under house arrest for his role in the loss of East Pakistan. Zulfikar and Zia-ul-Haq The civil war was a devastating loss for what remained of Pakistan and the political fallout was immediate. Yahya Khan resigned as president. Military rule ended in Pakistan, and Zulfikar Ali Bhutto became Pakistan's first civilian leader. Over the next several years, Bhutto worked to lessen the military's role in politics. And after the defeat in 1971, the military was in no position to oppose him. However, by 1977, Bhutto's popularity was waning and power began to shift back to the army. That's when his own hand-picked army chief, General Muhammad Zia-ul-Haq, led a coup against him. As president, General Zia-ul-Haq worked with the American CIA to get Pakistan involved in the Soviet-Afghan war. He also allowed the military to regain its hold over the levers of government. Despite two coup attempts, General Zia-ul-Haq continued to hold on to power in Pakistan throughout much of the 1980s. His rule finally came to an end when he died in a mysterious airplane crash in 1988. Return to Civilian Rule 
In December 1988, Benazir Bhutto, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto's daughter, was elected Prime Minister of Pakistan. She was the first Muslim female prime minister and the first civilian leader of Pakistan in over a decade. Nonetheless, the military continued to dictate Pakistan's foreign policy and retained control over its growing nuclear program. In August 1990, the army orchestrated Benazir Bhutto's dismissal and joined the American-led war against Iraq. But Benazir Bhutto came back in 1993 when she was elected to a second term as prime minister. This time, she strengthened her ties with the military and collaborated with them on foreign policy and nuclear weapons. Nawaz Sharif, a Pakistani businessman and politician, had been groomed for leadership by General Zia-ul-Haq. He had replaced Benazir Bhutto in 1990 and was now working with her brother, Murtaza Bhutto, against her. Benazir's popularity took a hit when her brother was killed in a police shootout in 1996. The suspicion of her brother, corruption, scandals, and friction with the president of Pakistan led to Benazir Bhutto's second dismissal in July of that year. Nawaz Sharif was re-elected prime minister in 1997 and worked to insulate himself from another downfall. First, he got rid of that pesky Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, which allowed the president to dismiss the prime minister. Then he got one of his cronies elected as president, adding another layer of protection. Finally, he chose the relatively low-ranking Pervez Musharraf as Army Chief of Staff, skipping over two more qualified generals. In 1998, both India and Pakistan successfully tested nuclear weapons. Tensions between the two nations continued to rise until May 1999. That's when General Pervez Musharraf authorized the occupation of the Kargil Heights in Kashmir. The Kargil conflict, as it became known, was the fourth war between India and Pakistan. The world stood on edge as the two nuclear-armed nations fought at altitudes as high as 20,000 feet above sea level. More soldiers died from the harsh cold elements than from gunfire. Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif claimed the military acted on its own and he knew nothing of their plans. Under pressure from President Bill Clinton, Nawaz Sharif ordered the army to withdraw. This angered the military brass who believed they were close to victory. The relationship between Nawaz Sharif and the army deteriorated. Finally, in October 1999, General Pervez Musharraf, in a bloodless coup, overthrew the government and arrested Nawaz Sharif. A New Century and a New War after just over a decade of chaotic civilian leadership, Pakistan was once again under military rule. Pakistan followed the United States in its war against the Taliban after 9-11. This only served to increase the military's control of the nation. But Pervez Musharraf was an unpopular ruler. He was criticized for the way he handled the situation in Swat Valley. Most Pakistanis disapproved of his support of America's war in Afghanistan and his attempts to manipulate the judiciary turned the legal establishment against him. The United States pressured Pervez Musharraf to hold elections, which he promised would take place in January 2007. This prompted Benazir Bhutto and Nawaz Sharif to return from exile in London and Saudi Arabia, respectively. Though Nawaz Sharif was barred from political activity, Bhutto announced her intention to run for parliament.
But TTP struck again. On December 27, 2007, Benazir Bhutto spoke at a political rally. As she opened her car door to wave to the adoring crowd, a young man opened a fire on her. Then he detonated an explosive vest, killing himself, Benazir Bhutto, and at least 20 other people. Shock and disbelief. Former Pakistani Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto was shot dead as she was getting into her car after addressing a rally of her party supporters. She had been campaigning ahead of elections during January. The 15-4-year-old opposition leader was rushed to Rawalpindi General Hospital where at 6.16 p.m. local time she was pronounced dead. The thing is what the doctor and the surgeon told me and confirmed is that Benazir has been martyred. Despite the assassination of Benazir Bhutto, her father's party came out ahead in the following year's elections. Pervez Musharraf had already resigned from the military and was now serving as a quote-unquote civilian president. He had also expressed his intention to remain in that role for another five years. But the new government wanted nothing to do with Musharraf and began impeachment proceedings. To avoid the humiliation of a public trial, Musharraf announced his resignation in August 2008. In 2013, Nawaz Sharif was once again elected Prime Minister of Pakistan. And once again, he tried to align himself with the military establishment. But the release of the Panama Papers in 2016 revealed he had secret offshore accounts and had falsified documents during his campaign. Pakistan's Supreme Court dismissed Nawaz Sharif and disqualified him from ever holding public office again. At the publication of this episode, he is serving a seven-year prison sentence. Nawaz Sharif's party remained in power until the 2018 general elections. Imran Khan, former cricketer and philanthropist-turned-politician, became the nation's 25th prime minister. Despite widespread approval, especially among Pakistan's youth, his opponents alleged the military helped him win the election. The third A, America. The United States of America and Pakistan have had diplomatic relations since the inception of Pakistan in 1947. The two nations have cooperated in many areas, including counterterrorism, energy, and trade. In 2017, there was over $600 billion worth of trade between the United States and Pakistan. And the United States has historically been one of the largest sources of investment in Pakistan. However, the dynamic between the United States and Pakistan has developed into a love-hate relationship. Pakistan has spilled a lot of blood on behalf of the United States in both the Cold War and the War on Terror. Nonetheless, the United States accuses Pakistan of not doing enough to fight extremism within its borders. After the partition of 1947, the United States was one of the first countries to recognize Pakistan. 
As the Cold War heated up, both the United States and the Soviet Union sought to woo Pakistan and India into their respective camps. During the Cold War, the Indian National Congress, the largest political party in India, gravitated slightly towards the Soviet Union. Though officially non-aligned, the Indian National Congress had socialist tendencies and was suspicious of U.S.-Pakistani relations. Prime Minister Liaquat Khan's visit to the White House in 1950 put Pakistan decisively on America's side. The relationship between the U.S. and Pakistan was very friendly in the first 15 years of independence. Pakistan joined various anti-communist alliances such as CETO in 1954 and CENTO in 1955. The U.S. and Pakistan also signed an agreement of cooperation in 1959. And Pakistan allowed the United States to build military bases on its soil. But things began to sour when India and Pakistan went to war in 1965. The United States and other Western nations decided to halt military aid to both belligerents. This wasn't that big of a deal for India since it was already getting most of its military aid from the Soviet Union. But for the U.S.-aligned Pakistan, who received most of its aid from the West, this was a devastating hit. This incident taught Pakistan not to depend completely on the United States. Pakistan has since developed a strong military relationship with China, which continues to this day. The U.S. disappointed Pakistan again during the 1971 civil war. Once again, Pakistan was expecting U.S. assistance in the east. There were even rumors that a U.S. naval fleet was on its way to help Pakistan win the war. But in the end, no American support was forthcoming. Pakistan's growing relationship with China, as well as Pakistan's involvement in the Six-Day War against Israel, led to growing U.S. antagonism. Zulfikar Ali Bhutto's Islamic Socialism was seen by the United States as a step away from the West and towards communism. And Bhutto's insistence that Pakistan would continue to develop her nuclear program only worsened the relationship. Things did not get any better when General Zia-ul-Haq overthrew Bhutto and established a military government. His attempts to introduce more Sharia-based laws in Pakistan further drove a wedge between the two nations. But everything changed when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in December 1979. Having lost Iran to the Ayatollah, the U.S. could not allow the Soviets to gain a foothold in Afghanistan. President Jimmy Carter offered Pakistan $400 million in aid, which General Zia-ul-Haq turned down. Congressman Charlie Wilson of Texas used his connections in Washington to approve a $3.2 billion aid package. With money flowing in from Washington and General Zia-ul-Haq's CIA-backed madrasa training camps, the Soviets were forced to withdraw in 1989. 
It is a little-known fact that the end of the Cold War began in a hot tub. I'm a congressman. I represent the Texas Second Congressional <laughs> Based on the unbelievable true story... I want you to defeat the Soviets and end the Cold War. Okay. ...of the least likely man... I will give it my fullest attention. Imagine my relief. ...ever to change history. I love the whiskey. We don't have alcohol in the presidential residence. That a lot of people make that mistake. No. Charlie Wilson's War... But with the departure of the Soviets came the end of American financial assistance. Afghanistan descended into chaos, which inevitably spilled over into Pakistan. Nonetheless, relations between Pakistan and the United States remained on fairly good terms. Pakistan sided with the United States in the first Iraq war. As an active UN member, Pakistani troops were deployed in several hot zones including Bosnia, Sudan, and Somalia. In Somalia, Pakistani troops helped evacuate American soldiers under attack in Mogadishu. By the late 1990s, the relationship was on a downward spiral yet again. Since the Soviet-Afghan War, the United States had turned a blind eye to Pakistan's nuclear program. But this ended when India and Pakistan both tested nuclear weapons in 1998. This led President Bill Clinton to levy economic sanctions against Pakistan. First, I, I deplore the decision uh, by failing to exercise restraint and responding to the Indian test. Uh, Pakistan lost a truly priceless opportunity to strengthen its own security, to improve its political standing uh, in the eyes of the world. And although Pakistan was not the first to test, two wrongs don't make a right. I have made it clear to the leaders of Pakistan that we have no choice but to impose sanctions pursuant to the Glenn Amendment as is required by law. And uh, thank you. By the end of the century, the Cargill conflict and Pervez Musharraf's coup had brought U.S.-Pakistani relations to a new low. And then came 9-11. To wage its war against the Taliban, the United States needed Pakistan for ground access to Afghanistan. The U.S. also needed Pakistan's permission to fly through its airspace. President George W. Bush used the carrot-and-stick approach to convince Pervez Musharraf to side with the U.S. Though Pakistan was once again in America's good graces, it paid a heavy price. The Taliban and other militant groups attacked Pakistani troops, government installations, and civilians mercilessly. Most Pakistanis disapproved of Musharraf's apparent capitulation to U.S. demands, and the United States violated Pakistan's sovereignty with the widespread use of drone strikes. Since 2004, the CIA and U.S. Air Force have used drones to attack confirmed and suspected militants across the globe. Though the use of drones first began under President George W. Bush, President Barack Obama dramatically accelerated their use. While Bush authorized 52 drone strikes globally, Obama authorized over 500. These drone strikes are one of the primary sources of anti-U.S. sentiment in Pakistan. Both governments insist the use of drones minimizes civilian casualties. 
However, some estimates claim over 900 Pakistani civilians have been killed by drones since 2004. In the early years of the war in Afghanistan, the government of Pervez Musharraf approved the use of drones in Pakistan. But as civilian casualties mounted, the government began to publicly denounce the strikes. In 2016, President Obama ordered the Pentagon to publicly report casualties caused by drone strikes. This was done to track and counter claims of civilian deaths. In March 2019, President Donald Trump issued an executive order reversing that requirement. As of today, most Pakistanis have a negative view of the United States. While most disapprove of military action in the region, they do favor better relations with America. Most Americans also have an unfavorable view of Pakistan. They blame Pakistan for creating the Taliban and providing a safe haven for terrorists. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed that and found it beneficial and educational and entertaining. I didn't mention, of course, at the beginning of the show, the great help that Brother Zulfikar Sarosh has provided in this episode and also in upcoming episodes. But this episode particularly, I could not have done it without his assistance. Uh, He was already a fan of the show and we met briefly at a local masjid here in Atlanta. And as we were talking, I I told him my plans to eventually do an episode on Pakistan. And he offered his help. And uh, maybe this is obvious, but he is a Pakistani American. And I gladly accepted his help and he came through like a champ. This brother has provided so many resources for me and he pretty much was the brains behind much of what we've got here. Um, If it wasn't for him, I would not have known about the even the three A's of Pakistan. I would not have known about the curse of 1971. And there are so many other things. So I just want to extend my heartfelt thanks to my brother and my friend, Brother Zulfikar Sarosh. Alhamdulillah, may Allah reward him for all of the assistance he has provided. Uh, A few more things before we wrap up. Uh, This episode is almost certainly going to be coming out on the first day of Ramadan for most of you. Some of you might be starting on Tuesday. Doesn't matter. Whenever you're starting your celebration, not celebration, observance of Ramadan, Ramadan Mubarak to everyone. And may Allah bless you during this period. And may you get the full rewards of Ramadan as I hope for myself as well. And in that spirit, I just want to remind you why we do this podcast. It's become important to me that I make sure we both understand, you and I both understand the purpose behind this podcast. This is a labor of love. This is a hobby in a way, but this, this, there's more to it than that. Okay. Number one, I want to help Muslims learn from the, both the mistakes and the achievements of the past. Number two, I want to help non-Muslims better appreciate Muslim contributions to the world and how the Muslim world got to where it is today. And finally, number three, my third reason for doing this podcast, or the third thing I hope to accomplish, I should say, I want to help Muslims from different parts of the world know and understand each other. 
as an African-American Muslim, I knew very little about Pakistan. I just saw that it was always in the news. I knew that it was basically created for Muslims, but it always seemed to have bad things happening there. And I wanted to understand more about it, which was the genesis of this episode and the this current series, when I asked Brother Sarosh about Pakistan, why is it going through the trouble, all the troubles? Why is it so unstable? Why does it always seem to have so many problems? And he began the conversation about the three A's of Pakistan, and that's how we got to where we are now. But even though I've never stepped foot in Pakistan, I feel as if I have a much better understanding of the country, a much, much better understanding and appreciation for the sacrifices that the nation and the people of Pakistan have made to the world overall. And so, so with that, we're going to wrap things up. But very briefly, we want to let you know after the episode, there will be a very casual talk about the Ahmadiyya. It'll be basically me talking. What I want to talk about regarding the Ahmadiyya, that I want to put it after the show. So if you don't want to listen, feel free to turn it off because it's not really about history, so to speak. I don't want to talk about the history of the Ahmadiyya, but I want to try to discuss or basically talk about what I believe why mainstream mainstream Muslims treat the Ahmadiyya differently than other heterodox groups, in particular the NOI, also known as the Nation of Islam here in the United States. Why is there such a negative reaction to the Ahmadiyya, whereas the NOI, the Nation of Islam, is, eh, they're there. We don't really think about them but so much. Show notes for this episode will be available at islamichistorypodcast.com slash Pakistan. On the show notes page, we will include, inshallah, videos and maps and links to the various sources for this episode. You can support the show by visiting the Patreon page, which is at patreon.com slash Islamic history. If you choose to become a Patreon subscriber, you will receive bonus and archived episodes. We have recently wrapped up the life of Prophet Muhammad. So if you go there, you get the entire um, Sira, Sira podcast about the life of Prophet Muhammad. So with that being said, brothers and sisters, until next time, Ramadan Mubarak. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Right, so we are back to discuss the Ahmadiyya and the NOI, or the Nation of Islam. Now, this could probably be a full episode in its own right, but we're not going to do that. I'm going to try to keep this to within about five to seven minutes at the most. So I want to just let, let everyone know, caveat, disclaimer, however you want to call it. I'm a Sunni Muslim, okay? Born and raised Sunni Muslim, studied under complete Sunni Muslims, teachers all the time. So... Um, but I want you to understand that uh, I, while I disagree with the beliefs of the Ahmadiyya, um, I'm not trying, this ep, this portion is not to try to argue for or against the Ahmadiyya. I'm trying to take a very objective, um, non-personal, non-biased view of um, these two groups, the Ahmadiyya and the Nation of Islam. My purpose or my intention, and I just want to try to understand why we treat these two groups differently. Why is the reaction to the Ahmadiyya so much more negative 
than the reaction to the nation of Islam. Because even though their beliefs are different, that is the Ahmadiyya, the nation of Islam, their beliefs are vastly different. The Ahmadiyya and the nation of Islam still have many similarities. Both groups came after Islam was already well established. The Ahmadiyya began in 1888 and the nation of Islam started in 1930. They are both considered heterodox or heretical groups by mainstream Muslims. And they both have these highly structured organizations with a single dominant leader. For the Ahmadiyya, it is their caliph, a man named Mirza Mahrur Ahmed. And for the Nation of Islam, it is Minister Louis Farrakhan. Yet, despite these similarities, the Nation of Islam doesn't really get the same kind of vitriol and negative reaction that the, as the Ahmadiyya do. The Nation of Islam, as far as I know, they're not banned from making Hajj. I've seen pictures with Louis Farrakhan making Hajj. Um, I'm not aware Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, but I am not aware of any government that specifically labels the nation of Islam as non-Muslim. And also the nation of Islam, they don't really have to worry about cultural stigmatism or social stigmatism or even attacks like some Ahmadiyya do in some parts of Pakistan and other countries. Now, while there has been violence against Ahmadiyya in Pakistan, don't think that it's like widespread, but. There is, we've mentioned before, I don't have to go back into that, but um, the Nation of Islam doesn't really have to worry about it. They don't worry about Muslims attacking Nation of Islam temples. That's not happening. Now, part of that is just because it's in the United States, but there's more to it than just that. So here are the reasons why I believe our attitudes towards the Nation of Islam and towards the Ahmadiyya are different. And there are quite a few reasons, but I think I boiled it down to about four. So number one, the influence of the Nation of, of Islam or the NOI, I'd rather call them the NOI, the influence of the NOI is much weaker than the influence of the Ahmadiyya. The um, NOI, it gains a lot of its influence from the notoriety of their leader, Louis Farrakhan. Most Muslims in the West, most People in the West, Muslim and otherwise, they have heard of Louis Farrakhan. However, most people, most Muslims, except for maybe black Muslims, don't they really don't know that much about the NOI and non-Muslims, except for those within the black community, of course, they know even less about the NOI. However, just about everybody, Muslim, non-Muslim, black, white and everything in between, just about everyone has at least heard of Louis Farrakhan. However, alternatively or coincidentally, paradoxically, whatever um, word I'm looking for, paradoxically, hardly anyone outside of the Ahmadiyya community has heard of Mirza Mahrur Ahmed. I didn't hear of him. <laughs> okay. And I, I run a history podcast. I never heard of Mirza Mahrur Ahmed until I started doing the research for this episode. So, how many Muslims out there know who the caliph of the Ahmadiyya is? Unless you're really involved in, you know, Ahmadiyya group or Ahmadiyya conversion stuff or missionary stuff. I'm not sure, but most Muslims don't know who he is. Despite the fact that more people know about Farrakhan than know about Mirza Mahdur Ahmed, at least in the United States, the Ahmadiyya still have much more influence 
in general than the Nation of Islam. The Nation of Islam, or I keep forgetting, I keep wanting to call them the NOI. I want to call them the NOI, not the Nation of Islam. The NOI, their influence kind of is limited to really some parts of the black community within the United States. Okay, it's, it really doesn't go much further than that. Uh, maybe a few Caribbean islands. They do have some influence in some Caribbean islands. Um, maybe some parts of Africa, but really it doesn't really go that far. The Ahmadiyya, however, they are global. Um, some parts of the world, especially India, they have they have really flourished in India. And from India, they've been able to go all around the world. That is because most um, Ahmadiyya, they can easily pass as mainstream Muslims. If you see and listen to an Ahmadiyya without them getting, if they don't really get into their theology, you can easily mistake them for a Sunni or Shiite Muslim. If you just listen to them talk because they say the same phrase, the same Islamic phrases, they have, they know the Quran, they use all the Arabic terminology and all that kind of stuff, you can easily mistake them for a Sunni or Shiite Muslim. And a non-Muslim who is, you know, someone who's not Muslim, basically, they will almost certainly say that these guys, that these guys are Muslim. Heck, most Muslims will say that these guys are Muslim if, if they don't really dig into their theology. But if you listen to a member of the Nation of Islam, within a few moments, you're going to know, okay, this guy is not talking about Islam. <laughs> Whatever he's talking about, I might like it, may sound good, but that's not Islam. That's something else. It, within a few minutes, you know that a nation, person from the Nation of Islam is not talking about Islam. So the Ahmadiyya, because they can easily pass as mainstream Muslims, they have um, there's a little bit more suspicion regarding them. Whereas the Nation of Islam, eh, nobody's really suspicious of them. And this kind of leads to another thing, and I'm not going to delve on this too much, but a lot of non-Muslims still don't really see black Muslims or African-American Muslims as being true Muslims. A lot of, a lot of non-Muslims still see us as, or may them, their first inclination will be nation of Islam. And you got to go into some deep theological explanations to try to explain that, no, we're not NOI, we're Sunni Muslim. And it's, is a lot to that. And I don't want to go too far on that, but it's still, and this is a, a cause of frustration for many, um, African-American Muslims, that people who are outside of the Muslim world, outside the Muslim community, still don't really see us as real Muslims. Uh, another thing, another reason why there's a different reaction between the Ahmadiyya and uh, the NOI, the Ahmadiyya are a primarily religious group. They're religious first, political second. Whereas the NOI is political first and religious might come three or four spaces down. They're not really religious at all. Now, because when I say they're not religious, I mean that they don't, religion is not their primary thing. Their main thing is politics. The Ahmadiyya aggressively recruit Sunni Muslim youth to their cause, which is a, which is a big part of the, um, of mainstream Muslim resentment. There's a big part of that. Whereas the NOI, they don't really care if you join them or not. The Nation of Islam doesn't care if you join them. They don't care. <laughs> you don't see the NOI going to universities trying to attract people to their organization. They might lead a protest on the university. They might provide security for, for a rap group doing a concert at a university. But you will, you'll be hard-pressed to find the NOI talking about 
you know, come join the NOI. That's not what they're about. What they're about. Their main concern is really civil rights for African Americans, which leads to another reason why I think there isn't as much um, antagonism towards the NOI is that they are seen as an exclusively black organization, and I think I believe that this discourages um, non-black. Muslims from saying too much about them because they don't want to be labeled racist. And yes, you will be labeled racist. I hate to tell you this, but if you are a non-black Muslim and you try to talk, say something against the nation of Islam, almost one of the first things they're going to do, they're going to accuse you of racism. Me, however, I'm black, so I'll say whatever I want about them. (laughs) They can't accuse me of racism. But I'm just saying that if you're not black and you're Muslim, you try to say that they're not true Muslim, they're going to say that you're racist. So that's one th- reason why I believe a lot of non-black Muslims um, kind of refrain from talking about them. And the final reason why I think the attitudes are different is that for African-American Muslims, African-American Muslims who, who are mainstream Sunni Muslims, a lot of them came from the NOI and they're empathetic. They, they feel for them. Uh, and briefly talk about the history, briefly talk about the history of the Nation of Islam, the roles have reversed. In the beginning, the uh, there are many more members, like say in the 50s and 60s, there are many more members of the NOI than there were black Sunni Muslims. However, after Malcolm X's assassination, more African Americans began to gravitate so- towards mainstream Islam. And this led to a lot of violence and fighting between the two groups. You may not know that there, there was a low-level war between the Nation of Islam or the NOI and mainstream Sunni Islam. And the, the Sunni Muslims were the underdog because they didn't have that many numbers. However, things began to change when Elijah Muhammad died in 1975. He was the leader of the NOI. When he died, his son, W.D. Muhammad, Warth D. Muhammad, he took over the NOI. He began to move them towards Sunni Islam from 1975 onwards. Farrakhan eventually broke away in the early 1980s, and he started his own organization based on Elijah Muhammad's original teachings. However, that relationship between the NOI and mainstream African-Americans, the complex relationship is still there. So many of today's African, African-American Muslims, them or their parents or their grandparents came from the NOI and they still have feelings for them. Even though they might reject their religious teachings, they still have feelings for them. And so that is still there. So those are my reasons. If you have questions or you have uh, more input to add on, I meant for this to stick within five minutes and I went way over that. If you have more questions or input about this topic or any other topic, feel free to contact me via social media. Um, you can find my Instagram at Islamic History Podcast. Facebook, you, there's an Islamic History Podcast page. And on Twitter, find me at Islamic History Podcast as well. But until next time, Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Could you clarify what we believe is what, what we mean by seal of the prophets? Seal of the prophets, as as far as I understand it, to me as an Ahmadi, is means the best of the best. It means that any other messenger or saint or reformer that comes after will have the seal of Rasulullah sallallahu on his heart. And if Allah so wanted to, Allah could make someone who really loved the Holy Prophet and wanted to make sure that Muslims were still doing good. Allah could make that person a prophet because Allah can do what he wills. That's what I understand Katim and Nabi'een to mean, the best of the prophets. But last, usually the last person to show up anywhere is usually ridiculed. The Quran tells us specifically that that I will always send you messengers 
Uh, and so, you know, I will always make sure that you have the message for me. I don't, I don't think it's reasonable for us to expect that God one day went, you know what, I'm just gonna stop talking to you. Right. That, that seems really silly. That's the main thing and the biggest misunderstanding I think about Jamaat Ahmadiyat is that they say they've taken another prophet. No, we have not taken another prophet. We've accepted the Mahdi that was foretold to come. That having a black face in the White House means that we don't have to make him do it. That's right. That's right. Who surrounds him? Let me, let me even go up a bit further. I, I, I just... It's all right, it's all right, Lily. Look, look. Our brother is brilliant. He got a good heart. I think he really loves America and wants to make America better. He wanted to ease the pain between America and the Muslim world. He wants to solve the problem of Israel and the Palestinians. He has the heart to want to make America better. But he's like that camel in the Quran that God warned the people don't hamstring his camel. 